0: Father, forgive us that those words are so rarely on our lips, that we have so settled here, so pillowed our lives here, that our longing for you is is forgotten. And yet when we hear read the scriptures and when we hear sung the songs, that turn our wayward hearts back towards you and the hope of forever with you. It does stir us in an extraordinary way. And so we pray now that your spirit and your word would have their way with us, that we would not resist, that we did not yield to distraction in this time, but our minds and our hearts and our lives might be yours. So speak to us, Father, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. It has been called by historians the Great Disappointment. Happened on the morning of October 23rd in the year 1844. And on that morning, the sun rose like any other day. And as God's people gathered in New England, this is the description written by Hiram Edson, who was one there. He says, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and wept, Till the day dawn. And amongst that band of believers it said some, following the great disappointments, simply gave up their beliefs. What was it that was so disappointing that would cause God's people to weep and some even to abandon their beliefs? To answer that question, you'd have to turn the clock back a little bit and look at the life of a man named William Miller, New England farmer who was converted to Christianity, marvelously from deism in the early 1800s. Um, when converted to Christianity, he, he was fascinated by the Bible and he studied it. Um, day in and day out, he studied it. And he was fascinated, especially with the Book of Daniel and the prophecies there. And he realized that Daniel chapter 8, verse 14 says that after 2,300 days, the sanctuary would be cleansed. And he discerned that day means year. And the cleansing of the sanctuary means the eradication of evil on earth. In other words, the end of the world as we know it. And according to James Usher, who was an influential Anglican bishop with a passion for dating biblical events, Daniel recorded that prophecy in 457 B.C. And so William Miller added 2,300 years to 457 B.C. And you get the year 1843 for the end of the world. And so he traveled, sometimes speaking at the age of 62, 85 times in about six or eight weeks on these matters, eventually publishing a short work because he could not speak and keep up with the demand for his messages. And an estimated 50,000 people took the message to heart and prepared in the year 1843 to meet their maker. He couldn't pinpoint a direct date he could only offer the span between March 21st of 1843 and March 21st of 1844, the beginning and the end of the Hebrew year, as the span in time in which Christ could be expected to return. Unfortunately, March 1844 saw no lions lying down with lambs, and Miller announced that he had erred. Some of his followers discerning the scriptures, they thought more precisely than he. Noted particularly Habakkuk 2.3 and Leviticus 25.9 as verses that indicated there was to be a tarrying time that he had neglected to calculate and they realized that on October 22nd, 1844, Christ would come on that day. And so on October 23rd, 1844, the Millerites experienced the great disappointment. Christ had not come. Now, the New Testament says that the return of Christ rightly understood. not only will not lead to great disappointment and grief, but instead is our greatest, surest hope. Even in the face of death itself. Listen to what Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, that is those who die. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Paul says, there's a hope when you stand graveside. That's sure. He says, it's the return of Christ. It says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, those who have died, faith in Christ. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, with, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This, Paul says, is hardly the great disappointment. He says, it is our greatest, surest hope And this hope of the return of Christ is one of the central themes of two letters that Paul is writing to a church in a a place called Thessalonica. They are in the New Testament of your Bibles. You should open there now to first and second Thessalonians. The church in Thessalonica was a church that Paul himself planted on one of those missionary journeys that he took. We've been looking at those since Acts and along one of those journeys, the second one, Paul started a church in a place called Thessalonica and he's writing these letters to them. You can read about it in Acts 17 later if you'd like. Like all the churches that Paul planted, how he loved the people of the church called the Thessalonians. Listen to the way he speaks of them. He starts his letter this way. The very first letter, he says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you, for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, Your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. Your faith, your love, and your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the second chapter, he says, we were gentle among you when we were there like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, But our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. So dear to us. For you know, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul says, I love you like a mother loves her children. I love you like a father loves his children. And fathers, if you want a job description, there you go. Encouraging, comforting, and urging your children to live lives worthy of God. It's not a bad job description. Paul says that's, That's what our affection for you is like. He doesn't just say this in the first of his letters. The second letter has the same idea. He says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Paul loved them. And he cared deeply that they had suffered so because of their faith. Now his letters contain, uh, just, it, these are just fantastic letters and I want to uh, encourage you, they're short. You should read them this week. Sometimes they send out highlights for the longer passages. These are the highlights, Thessalonians 1 and 2. Read them all. It's not but maybe 10 chapters. They contain some of the best teaching on work, the value of work in the New Testament. If you have a job, you should read Thessalonians. But perhaps uniquely, they present this teaching of the return of Christ. And we'll focus... On that theme that runs through these letters today as we think about what Paul's doing again, he's planting churches to advance the kingdom and he writes these letters back to ensure the health of these churches so they stay on mission. And so as though Paul were writing to us today, we're going to see that for us to fulfill our mission, God's mission in our world, we've got to get this that Christ's return is sure and soon, perhaps. Paul says, because of the reality, because of the surety of their hope of Jesus' return, he says, they should even face death differently. Friday, I'm in my office and I get on my desk, not one, not two, but three cards expressing sympathy for the greatest of loss. Someone in our congregation. Three, in recent days, have lost loved ones. A 49-year-old brother-in-law, 49 years old. Another lost, both his father and his grandfather while out of the country on vacation, both In one week, and yet another young couple suffered a miscarriage at 17 weeks. What sorrow. What loss. And yet, Paul says to this suffering church, and I cannot help but wonder if some of them had not suffered unto death for the gospel. So that he would say, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, about those who die. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Why not? Why should the follower of Christ grieve differently at the most tragic of losses? What makes Graveside different for those who believe? And Paul's going to go on and he's going to say there are two great doctrines that matter at Graveside. And don't miss my choice of words. They are doctrines. Doctrine matters. You need it. That's why we teach it. Paul says, these two things, if you believe these, and you cling to these, they'll change the way you think about and face death, and they'll change the way you live life every day. If you get these two things and the first of those is the resurrection of Christ. He says in verse 14, don't, don't grieve, he says, like those who have no hope. It's okay to grieve. Jesus wept. You know, the, the scriptures are riddled with those who grieve the loss of a loved one. But he says, don't grieve like somebody who doesn't have any hope because we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so... We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Our hope of resurrection is directly tied to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Paul will write later in Second Corinthians four, or elsewhere in Second Corinthians four, he says, "We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead." will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. These are inseparable things, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his followers. Let's see. Because he has risen, we will If Christ rose, we will So this morning, you can see it's pretty important. Do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Do you believe that on the third day, frantic disciples looked in that tomb and it was empty? He was risen. And that he made 10 appearances over the next 40 days to crowds of up to 500 people. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that's historically accurate? If you want to stand at the grave, more critically perhaps this morning, if you want your family to stand at your grave with something more than inconsolable grief and loss and despair, it all hinges on what you believe about the resurrection of Christ. Did he raise or not? Did he die for the sins of those who would believe in him? And then did he rise? 1 Corinthians 15 says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're, we're to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam I'll die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See, it all hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Otherwise, we're reduced to just wishful thinking. He's in a better place. I know it. I hope it. I wish it. I heard it on a country western song. Do you think you could use another angel to help pour out the rain? Don't get your eschatology, the end of the doctrines of the end of the world or the end of life, from country western songs, okay? Get it from the scriptures we don't become angels and we don't help pour out the rain <laughs> the bible presents a much more glorious future do you know what it is you should it's your hope if you're a follower of christ a wish does not replace grief at the graveside With worship. Only a certain hope anchored in the resurrection power of the risen Savior, Jesus, the Christ, does that. The dead will be raised with Christ, it's a promise. So the resurrection matters. That's the first doctrine, Paul says, that really is transformative in our suffering. The second doctrine that matters is closely related, and that is the return of Christ. He continues on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he says, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left Till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, in the clouds, to meet with the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And so he unfolds a stunning hope for those of us who have lost loved ones. He says they're actually going to be raised. Their bodies will be raised before the living at Christ's return. And those who are living will be united with them. And together we will always be with the Lord. This is not some fairy tale. This is not something made up, just a left behind books. This is not some myth or rumor or unverifiable legend. This is our sure hope. According to Jesus' own words, he says, John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. Rendered in some of the modern translations, I'll be back. And take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So, do you believe that he rose from the dead? Do you believe that he will return? If you want to stand by that grave one day, or if you want your loved ones to stand by your grave one day, With anything ruling their hearts except inconsolable grief, loss and despair, it all hinges on whether you believe his promise to return. See, if you believe he's risen and that he will return as he has promised, then you have an unshakable hope. Paul says... Back in our passage, therefore, encourage each other with these words. We should speak to one another of the return of Christ. Because we are so forgetful and so distracted, we need to be reminded that Christ has risen and he will return. And we will be caught up together with those who have died. And we will be together with the Lord forever. Now, the the section of theology called eschatology, the study of end things, end times, um, is fraught with controversy. Controversy. Is this about the rapture? Is this about the second coming? Is there even such a thing? Is it pre-mid, post-ah? I have a friend who's a pan-millennialist. He believes it'll all pan out in the end. Does he take him to heaven or is this something about a new earth, what's going on here? You need to understand our hope is not principally about when. It's not about a slot in a scenario or a page on a calendar. It's not even principally about a destination. Well, the Bible has much to say about our destination. Not about the calendar, it's not about the destination, it's about the company. Okay. We will be caught up together with them. And we will be together with the Lord forever. That is our hope. Not when or so much where, helpful though those conversations are. It's who. It's him. And Paul says, the return of Christ should f- shape the way we face death. And he says, in the next chapter, chapter 5, it should f- shape the way we live life every day, every day chapter 5, he says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness. So that this day should surprise you like a thief. See, the return of Christ is this great clarifying act that divides all of humanity in two groups. Children of darkness and children of light. Those who believe in Christ and those who do not. There is no middle ground. In the language of politics, there are no independents. Vote this way one time, vote that way another. Uh Uh-uh. There are no republicrats or Demoplicans. It's one or the other. It's not Christ. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus or. And Paul says that Being children of light or darkness shows up at the return of Christ in a very clarifying way, but it ought to be clarifying now. It ought to be shaping our days by our expectant, hopeful readiness for His return. There ought to be a difference The way you live your days, your Monday, your tomorrow, because you believe in the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. That's supposed to shape Monday. He says that those who are children of darkness are characterized by a lack of expectancy. They are taken by surprise. Imagine the headlines. Nobody saw it coming. It's not so much by their words," he says, but it is their attitudes. They are unbelieving and therefore unready, unexpected. surprise comes upon them as a thief in the night, he says. It's not that they're saying, I don't believe this so much, but they're living, I don't believe this. And so you need to know this morning then that that means there could be people in this room who on that day will be horribly taken by surprise because you have not believed in the gospel of God as it's borne out in his son's death on your behalf and his resurrection and the good news of his return. It's like a thief in the night. Ever been robbed? I've been robbed. Had stuff stolen. Never expected it. If I'd expected it, I sure wouldn't have let it happen. Fantasized afterwards about all the ways that I could have stopped it, would have stopped it, happily stopped it, caught him and stopped him personally. Um, Ever had labor pains, ladies? You know they hook all this gear up to you now, right? And you can watch. You know they chart them. Your husband can tell you there's there's a contraction coming, dear. You're never ready. Okay? Doesn't matter. Lights, buzzers, anything could go off saying a contraction is coming. And you're not ready for that. You can't be ready for that. Christ's coming will be sudden and inescapable, like the next contraction, Paul says. Unbelievers will simply be going about life as they please unsuspecting that the Lord of the universe is about to return as judge of all. We who believe, we who are children of light, are to be different. We are to be expectant. We are to be ready, hopeful. See, he says in the next verses, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep spiritually. Let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation. As a helmet. This is the imagery here as of wartime readiness. Spiritual armor on, wearing, he says, faith, hope, and love every day. Every day. Reminding yourself every day. Could this be the day? What if this was the day? I wanna be found faithful. I want to be found hopeful. I want to love well on that day. And I think personally, no no matter what your particular eschatology is, to ask yourself regularly, what if this was that day? It's not a bad question. Or to think about places like Matthew 24 where Jesus says, therefore keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. I don't know what your eschatology is, but I'm betting that all of us are going to have some revision to do when he comes. I haven't found anybody that's got it all wrapped up tidily and can answer all my questions. I have my hunches and my leanings, but nobody solves it all. So we're all going to have to get it straight. So I just say, be ready. Okay? You don't know on what day your Lord will come. Or what day he won't? But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come guaranteed at an hour when you do not expect him. Paul says, As children of light... If we truly believe in his return, put on faith, hope, and love every day so that we're ready, so that we fend off temptation every day, so that we'd be ready. Because what if this is the day? I think in any system that I've ever found um, thinking about these matters, it's a true statement that today is the closest moment in history to the return of Christ that has ever been. Most scholars think Paul was hopeful that it would happen in his lifetime. It's more likely to happen in your lifetime than Paul's. Shouldn't you be more hopeful and more ready? You're you're living at the closest moment to the return of Christ in history. I don't think you want to be caught um, unready. I know you don't. I know I don't. He says beautifully in the next verses in chapter 5, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we live or we've died, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another encourage one another to be ready and build each other up so that you will be ready just as in fact you are doing. Our destiny, he says, is not for wrath but for salvation. Christ died to secure that destiny for us so that at his return our destiny would be to experience the salvation of God not the wrath of God. Why did he do that? Why did Christ take the bullet for us, so to speak? Why did he sit in the chair in our place? Why did he hang on the tree for my sin? To change my destiny, yes. But in verse 10 there, it says, He did that so that we may live together with him. That one of, one of, The reasons Jesus endured the cross was for your company. So that you could be with him now and forever. And so a day lived apart from Christ is a day contrary to the cross. He is eager to have you in his company for all eternity. And that is why he went to the cross. It's one of the reasons why he went to the cross. That we may live together with him. Be watchful. Be ready. Be hopeful. Christ is risen and he will return. But make no mistake about it, there is, in a sense, another side to this doctrine, a more sobering side, because there are those who are destined for wrath. And in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, one of the more sobering statements I've ever read about it, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. At the return of Christ, there will be a sure and eternal judgment meted out on all who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be, according to Paul, an everlasting destruction. I do not know a more sobering thought. Tony Campolo tells a story from on July 4th, back in 1854, a man named Charlie Peace, a well-known criminal in London, was hung. And the Anglican Church, which had a ceremony for everything, had a ceremony for hanging people. And so when Charlie Peace was marched to the gallows, a priest read these words from the prayer book. He said, those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. And when those chilling words were read, Charlie Peace, the condemned criminal, stopped in his tracks and turned to the priest and shouted in his face, do you believe that? Do you believe that? And the priest was a little taken back by the verbal assault stammered for a moment and said, well, I suppose I do. Well, I don't, said Charlie. But if I did, I'd get down on my hands and knees and crawl all over Great Britain, even if it were paved with pieces of broken glass, if I could rescue one person from what you just told me. Paul warns us that at the return of Christ he returns as judge of all and for those who do not know God and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus they will be punished with everlasting destruction shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. I think that just underscores the urgency of of our compassionate rescue mission. There was, in Paul's day, and as continues to be in this day, false teaching concerning these matters about the return of Christ. And in Second Thessalonians 2, he writes about that. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So that's the problem. There were some who were saying in Paul's name that the day of the Lord had already come and was upon them. And, of course, we know that aberrant predictions abound. I've already shown you that in our own culture's history. It persists. The Jehovah Witnesses um, seem to excel at bad predictions concerning the the end of the world. So far they've predicted in 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975, and as recently by some, 1994. Um, If If you're in conversation with the Jehovah Witnesses and some of what they say makes sense to you, please understand how desperately wrong they have been about critically important matters and whether or not you want to trust the interpretation of the Scriptures to a group of people who have been so horribly wrong, so repeatedly, and have not learned from it. But that's a whole other can of worms. So... Paul continues in chapter 2, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And he goes on to say, there's a couple things that have to happen, the Bible says, and I've taught you uh, about these things. He said, there's going to be a rebellion and there's going to be a man of lawlessness. that's going to show up and they've not shown up. So we're not in the day of the Lord. What he does though, Paul says, he gives biblical teaching, this time his own teaching, to calm their fears and safeguard their souls. The Bible is the way you protect yourself from false teaching, from knowing what the scriptures say. And of course, Jesus says, No one knows the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How much angst could have been spared wayward believers and seekers if we had heeded Jesus' teaching and known it well? Paul's purpose in giving these signs of the end is not to lessen our expectancy of the return of Christ, but to protect them and us from error. Do you know what the scriptures teach about the return of Christ? There is much clear teaching. Paul does not say, hey, it's this eschatology. Don't worry about it. It'll all shake out. You don't have to know that stuff. He doesn't say that. He is greatly concerned to issue corrective teaching on this doctrine of the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, the end of the world as we know it. So you need to know what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ. And you need to know that with great humility. Humility. Because it seems that we're given information about the end of the world and return of Christ um, on a need-to-know basis only. Of course, our want-to-know greatly exceeds our need-to-know. Hence, many books, many disputes, and uh, many conversations. We don't get all we want to know about the calendar or even the destination, but we get the big ideas and we know who, we know what our hope is. And I would just like to challenge you, will you learn and know and cherish the hope of the return of Christ? Will you read First and Second Thessalonians this week with an eye towards that recurring doctrine? With humility, letting the main things be the main things, but knowing and cherishing what the Bible teaches with clarity about the return of our Lord and our hope. Now, those Millerites back in 1844, they went on and some of them abandoned their beliefs, but there were others who went on and met in Albany in 1845 the next year to form a conference that splintered into three groups in the future. One of those today is called Second Advent Christians. And they believe that Miller was wrong about the time but that that was really a minor matter. He was right on the essential. Christ is coming soon. So I pray that we would be found with those second Advent Christians who in spite of all the guesswork that surrounds this teaching, we will hope and we will rest and we will treasure and we will be shaped by the hope of the return of Christ. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, he's got his kind of standard greeting, churches greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you, um, all everybody greets you, greet one another, and then he says, Maranatha. It's a strange word has persisted even into our day, Maranatha. Come, Lord, Come as we have our closing response in worship, it says just that. I know sometimes this doctrine affects people in unusual ways. And uh, it convicts you of what seemed to be wholly unrelated sin. You're listening to teaching about the return of Christ, and you are broken now about your marriage. Return of Christ, marriage? Or, or the way you've handled your money, or the way you treated a child, or the way you honored a parent, or didn't, or the, what you did at school or work, or whatever. God speaks to us about the purity of our lives when we teach this doctrine. And so God's speaking to you today as we invite his coming, we speak of our faith in this closing song. If you want to come forward for an evident expression of humble prayer and repentance, I'd encourage you to do that. Just make your way down. Let's stand and let's sing of our great and sure hope.